Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. In honor of International Women's Day, we have decided to re-air an episode that we recorded last year. This is a conversation between Elizabeth Frederick and Sally Helgeson. Sally is a best-selling author, speaker, and was identified by Forbes as the world's premier expert on women's leadership. To find links from this episode, head to criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod260. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I am really, really excited about today's guest. She is a best-selling author, speaker, and she has been identified by Forbes as the world's premier expert on women's leadership. She has authored eight books, including her latest, which is called How Women Rise, Break the 12 Habits Holding You Back from Your Next Raise, Promotion, or Job. It is literally on the bookshelf behind me. It is a great book. She is a contributing editor to a lot of different strategy and business magazines, and she's based just north of New York City, where where I am. So we are so glad to have you here. Welcome to the show, Sally Huggison. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm just so glad that you could join us. I think this will be a, a fun conversation for us and hopefully really insightful for our listeners. So I just shared those kind of top level um, bullets from your bio, from your resume, but I know that's not all of who you are. So I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners, Sally, um, and maybe talk about the journey that you've been on to get where you are today and where you develop the passion for what it is that you're doing. Oh, certainly. Uh, Today, as I have been for the last 30 years, I'm an author, a speaker, was traveling around the world very actively on a full-time basis until March 10th of this year, uh, and leadership coach. Mm -hmm. And my focus for the last 30 years has been helping women recognize, uh, articulate, and act on their greatest strengths and understand what could get in their way so that they can help their organizations really build cultures in which they and other women can thrive. So I've had a really specific mission for those 30 years. The years prior to that, you would not have necessarily seen me going in this direction. Uh, I had been a journalist, and then through the 80s, I was in corporate communications And I worked mainly as a speechwriter for corporate executives. Uh, But it was in doing that work, and this was the 80s, remember, so it was a very different time. What I saw was that there were many women, myself included, who had not just great skills, but great insights and great potential for strategic Mm. thinking in the organizations I worked with. Uh, and in partner organizations that had basically no way of making their voices heard, excuse me, <clears throat> because they they were they weren't asked what their thoughts were, and they weren't in positions or even on track uh, for positions where they could have had an influence on on how things were decided, the big things were decided in their organizations. There wasn't really an understanding at all in most of the companies I worked with, in any of them, about what women had to contribute. So I wanted to do something about that. Uh, I was kind of fired with that goal. I'd always been a writer. I'd written a book previously on independent oil producers in Texas, so you can imagine how many women there were in that one. But, uh, uh, you know, so I, I was looking for <laughs> you know, a writer. You're always looking for a book to write. And um And I thought, I want to write a book on what women at their best can contribute as leaders. 
So I began following, it was just a project of mine. I began doing sort of diary studies of some of America's best women leaders. I would have done it globally, but I didn't have the budget. And to try to identify what was distinctive about them, what made them valuable to their organizations. Uh, I didn't do interviews. I did diary studies because I felt that if I documented what they did, there'd be people wouldn't say, well, she just says she does that, but I wonder what it's really like. We'd be able to see it. And also I was influenced. Henry Mintzberg's great work on um, uh, on executives, which was all about male executives. He'd used diary studies. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do something like that. And that, um, that project became the book, The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership, which was published in 1990. And uh, still in print, and which I'm very proud to say was the first book that looked at what women had to contribute as leaders, rather than how they needed to change and adapt. Everything in the '80s was about, you know, learn to play, you know, learn to talk about football, leave your values at home, mm-hmm. you know, lead like the guys do. So this was the first one that took a different tack, and and as a result, people started calling on me to work in their companies and talk about women's initiatives and, you know, work with women's local networks, whatever it is. So I just, I went wherever it was. So that was, that was 30 years ago. And uh, I just saw, I have a great passion for this topic. It's rich, it's important. It has influence on the direction of the world. And uh, I stayed with it writing, you know, six more books in the field, hundreds of articles, doing coaching, and thousands and thousands of internal programs that I've delivered, you know, from Kuala Lumpur to Cairo to Harare, Zimbabwe (laughs) to Sao Paulo, and uh, of course, all over US, Canada, Europe, Mexico. Uh, It's been pretty interesting, pretty inspiring. That really sounds like it. I I love how you were able to take that early experience and recognizing bluntly the injustice of of people who had such ability and such insight and um, and such potential uh, who were prevented, whether it was you know explicitly or or just kind of implicitly prevented from sharing that and from communicating that and from um, you know achieving the potential that they had. And so you took that and you've, you've continued to just continue to build on that um, over the years. That's really inspiring. You know, there's one other thing about that. Um, when I was reading the books for women that were published in the 80s, and I, I learned a lot from them, but when I was reading them, what I saw was they were all operating based on the presumption that nothing was going to change. This is how organizations are. You know, this big industrial uh, companies, they're not going to change. And so your job mm-hmm. is to really slot into them and fit in. And it was mm. very apparent to me that there was enormous change coming just because of how the technology mm-hmm. was evolving and the increasing globalization of the world and that there were demographic, economic, and especially technological factors that were not only changing organizations, but changing what the model of leadership was going to look like. So what I really wanted to be a voice for was don't give women 
lots of advice about how to lead well in the old industrial hierarchical organization that is being upended by the technology. Uh, let's look at how organizations are changing, how business is changing, mm. and how that intersects with what women have to bring. Absolutely. I think that really leads into what I wanted to talk about next, because um, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, until March 10th, you had a certain way of, of doing your work. You were doing a lot of travel, a lot of speaking around the world. And since that time here in the East Coast of the U.S., um, different time elsewhere, uh, there's been a, a bit of a different situation. It's a, it's a really turbulent and challenging time. We're recording this in, in early June. I know that you have been working with and studying leaders for 30 years. And so you've probably seen other turbulent times, right? We, we've, we've never been through exactly this situation, but we've been through a lot of complicated situations. So I'd love to hear from you um, some things that you've learned from those prior challenges that leaders could implement today. So for example, one thing that, that I often hear is that... Um, in hindsight, people have some incorrect presumptions. There's incorrect um, places that people are, are looking at situations from, and, and they're making mistakes because they're, they're starting from the wrong place. Do you have any um, incorrect presumptions that you often see that leaders are making in times of, of turbulence or crisis? Yes. Yes, I definitely do. And I have been through this. I would say that that 9-11 and particularly the mm -hmm. meltdown, the financial meltdown in 2008 mm -hmm. were the two experiences that I lived through while doing this work that have helped inform my thinking. And the two biggest um, mistakes that I have seen, may, I don't want to say mistakes, but just responses that don't, that aren't really optimal that I've seen leaders mm -hmm. make. First of all, there's a presumption that everything going forward is going to be completely different, that all bets are off. Mm -hmm. And I hear that this time. And this time, you know, it's a much more complicated situation. So I think there's an element probably of greater truth. But after 9-11 and after the 2008, oh, everything's going to change. There's going to be no organizational learning. Uh, people aren't going to travel ever to get together and, you know, having learning communities that all of this is going to get shut down. And it, it just was you know, so there's a little bit of a presumption on that. So, yes, these these large crises do change the environment, but they change them often in ways that we can't even begin to foresee or understand mm. at the time. So it's very important now to I think there's a human desire to sort of grab on to this is what this means. We don't know what it means. And we need to be comfortable with feeling that we're in a place where we don't know, because what I see leaders often do is they feel that they, in order to provide some stability or security for their people, they have to almost pretend, um, they have to grab on to an idea about what this means, what this means for our world, for mm -hmm. our economy, for our organization, for our people. They grab onto that early and then stick with it because they feel that that's going to provide people with some degree of stability. Whereas in fact, the leader's ability to say, you know, we're on, this is a really challenging time here and we don't know exactly how things are going to evolve. So we need to watch that. We need to watch that together. 
Uh, every one of you will have insights or experiences that may be relevant to helping us to discern the next direction, that that's a much more, much more powerful way than feeling like I've got to figure out what's going on here in order to reassure my people. There's another thing that, that lies with that. And that is my takeaway from having lived through some big crises. And of course, you know, I also lived through the 1960s, but I certainly wasn't doing this work then. But my, my takeaway from it is it is really a time to be reflective. Um, it's time to be very reflective. And I saw a lot of my colleagues, as soon as things shut down, because many of them are like me, they're on the road, they're doing programs all over the world, you know, living in airports and on planes year after year. And many of them were like, okay, I'm pivoting, I'm pivoting. I'm uh, working to get a hologram of myself sent out to my clients and blah, blah. <laughs> It's like, really? It's a week? And you're, you know, you, you've completely reinvented yourself? Yes, to some degree, we're all going to be called upon to reinvent ourselves. But it's a great opportunity to be reflective. And what I have tried to do through this time, and I say this every day to myself, my job is to be intentional, remain connected, and be present. And that gives me an open attitude, but also an attitude. The intentional part is, what am I going to focus on today? And I found that very helpful. So I think the, the too quick of a pivot, the avoidance of reflection, and the desire to name exactly what the new circumstances are going to be and get out ahead of this curve um, are the biggest mistakes I see leaders make. Absolutely. Um, and it's such a human, you know, so many of these are just human temptations and it's a natural human response is that we're, we're afraid of uncertainty. It, it makes most of us very uncomfortable. And so we, we want to, and we feel we need to establish certainty, but if, if certainty doesn't exist and we make a claim, then it's likely that that could be wrong. And then we're going to have to say, oh, you know, I was I was sure that we would reopen our office on June 8th, but actually uh, things have changed. And so now our date is June 15th. And you can just say, you know what? We don't know when it's going to be because the state guidelines are what they are. We will continue to communicate with you. As soon as we find anything out, we'll let you know. And then you don't have to, you know, eat that crow of, of being wrong. And um, I think it, it, it comes from a good place as a leader of you want to give your team certainty. But if you don't know, you just don't know. And and trying to make it up, trying to, to kind of get beyond your skis, um, it's, you know, you might be right. But it's, it's much less likely in these times of, of a lot of chaos and difficulty. Um, and I really love what you noticed that, you know, I do think we have this perception that things are going to be wildly different. And that may be the case. But there is a, a natural human bias toward normalcy. Yes. And if you look at just all of the chaos that's happened, um, even just over the last few years, um, something will happen and we'll think, oh my goodness, this is the end of the world. This is, this is crazy. This is chaos. And then within sometimes hours, sometimes days, sometimes weeks, we're, we're pretty much back to normal. And in some ways that's a bad thing probably. And in some ways that's a really good thing that, um, that we're able to just 
go back to our normal lives and and kind of get back into a rhythm um, because that that is what kind of keeps things moving forward. So uh, it's it, it is in the moment. I think things always seem like they'll have maybe a bigger impact than they do. And yes. that's a great observation. Yeah. All right. Not not even so much a bigger impact, but a more lasting and predictable impact than that than they will. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so there is always this. And I think that's part of the tension of great leadership is on one hand, you want to steer things on a course where there's some feeling of normalcy and stability, <clears throat> excuse me, because people people can get overreactive when they don't feel that. Um, so, you, you know, mm. that's part of your job as a leader. On the other hand, part of your job as a leader is remaining open to the new possibilities that are constantly arising as situations change, um, the opportunities and also, you know, the, the the big challenges that you may find yourself addressing. So uh, that's that's really the art to me of leadership is to be to be able to balance those two aspects of that you know, creating some feeling of, of stability and and even ritual, common rituals. I was reading uh, the other day, I was reading a really fascinating book about the first year of the um, of the war in Britain in uh, May, May 1940 uh, to 41. And one of the things mm-hmm. that they did that, that it was so chaotic and London was being bombed and, you know, uh, lots of population centers were being bombed and, and, and it was terrible. Um, But one of the things they did was they made sure that all the shelters and that they had these stations all over the towns that served people tea and that brewed tea where people (laughs) could gather and drink tea. And it became, it was a real thing. And I thought it's so smart because on one hand, you know, you're saying, Yep, we don't know. You know, we don't know if your neighborhood's going to get bombed tonight. We don't know what's going to happen here. Uh, it was very dangerous to be in the streets, and it was very frightening because it was a blackout. But but we are English, and we will establish our you know culture <laughs> by serving people tea in subway stations where they're living with their families in order to uh, uh, that are serving as bomb shelters. So I think that you know it really stuck stuck with me as a kind of vivid example of, you know, stability amid rapid change and even, you know, in that case, terrifying crisis. That is such a, a wonderful story. And I think it's it's also really reflective of, it wasn't that they said, okay, um, you know, live in your normal home and, and just go about everything normal. It wasn't that they said, you know, here is the date at which the blitz will end. But instead, they're saying, okay, here is a piece of normalcy that we can provide. And I think that is something that leaders can take for for all that we've been talking about today is, um, you know, you might not be able to provide the full normalcy, um, the full kind of back to back to, you know, what you would like to provide to your team. But are there pieces of normalcy that you can provide to them? You know, we have a, a daily morning meeting when we're in the office where we just get together around a big table and it's a quick stand up meeting. And so instead of just doing that over the phone, we thought, why don't we do that every day over video so we have a little bit more like it's normal. And just that little change has made a big impact to um, 
to the way that we feel. And we feel a little more connected as a team because we see each other every day. And so it's, it is such a small thing, but it is, um, but, but it is significant. So, um, and, and people might hear my cat has sneaked into the room and is yowling. <laughs> I hear your cat. <laughs> the door was closed. She has learned to open the door. <laughs> oh, wonderful. It, it does happen. But, um, you know, I was going to say one other thing that, because I know this is, you know, let's talk sales. Um, you know, one of my own favorite quotes, and I think it's from Diana Vreeland, is actually, hope is what sells. Hope is mm. what sells. So I think in a time like this, this is what leaders, you know, where you really want to be careful. You want to provide people with a feeling of hope and normalcy, and you want to make sure it's real. When we, um, Marshall Goldsmith and I were doing a program at eBay on the day before things began to get shut down in California, and it was the last program that I did. And uh, at the end of the program, when Marshall was heading off to the airport, he said, okay, this is going to be different. He said, um, but I just uh, urge you to use this time to stay connected and to be real. And it's, a, it's something that I've tried to focus on is really being very real and showing up in a real, real way, um, like your cat is presently insisting you do. And um, <laughs> it's, 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 so again, that tension between hope. You want to maintain hope for people. I think the reason that my career has been successful working with women is that I really provide women with hope and tools for creating careers that can be satisfying, sustainable, and deeply rewarding where they can uh, develop to their fullest potential. And that gives them hope. And so that sells. But you also mm -hmm. have that responsibility to keep it real. So I think that, you know, again, in terms of thinking about the sales aspect of leadership and the leadership aspect of sales, that again, that, that balance is so important. That's really come out um, of a lot of of what you're saying is just that, you know, leadership is challenging and balance. You're always kind of going to be pulled in two different directions and finding the right balance between them is key. I want to now take this to what you specifically have been focused on, um, which is obviously women's leadership. What are some of the specific strengths that women leaders provide, whether it is in kind of normal times or whether it's specifically in times of chaos like we're experiencing now? Well, the demonstrated strengths that really characterize women's leadership at its best have remained remarkably consistent, um, mm. at least since I've been, uh, been in it, which is 30 years. And those are strength at not just building strong relationships, but building organizations that encourage the people within them to have strong relationships with one another. So there's a real emphasis on relationship. A bias mm -hmm. toward direct communication as opposed to communication up and down a chain of command, which was you know, very uh, common in the hierarchical era, uh, which some leaders still insist on because they like to be mm -hmm. at the top of things, but which has constantly been undercut by the technology. Uh, comfort with as opposed to tolerance of diversity. Women have often been outsiders in their organizations, certainly in the leadership. 
So they, on one hand, understand the value that fresh eyes can bring, um, but mm. they also know in their bones what condescending expectations and behaviors feel like. Uh, so that 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 comfort with diversity is is a huge advantage. Putting themselves, wanting to lead from the center rather than the top, what I call building a web of inclusion. So on one hand, a web gives you an image of, of, of the leader in the center, but also that inclusive web where you're drawing people in around you and helping create connections between them so that mm. you have that um you know, that, that relationship aspect. And then finally, I think really strong uh, is that, you know, women have by necessity been comfortable bringing information, skills, practices that they learn at home to the workplace and vice versa, professional mm. skills into the managing of their home. So they have a, you know, to some degree, a, a more flowing identity. And I was very aware of this when I was doing the research for the, the female advantage, because women leaders all emphasized, you know, I'm the same person at home as a sister, as a mother, as a, a wife, as a daughter that I am at work. And Henry Mintzberg, you know, I was looking to his work uh, in fashioning the female advantage. One of the things he was most critical of the male leaders he studied was he said they they so compartmentalize their lives, work and home. There's no, they treat their home almost as a branch office, many of them. So I think, you know, that that's all those things, every one of those strengths. And then, you know, there also been some of the documented strengths around negotiation, negotiation for win-win as opposed to, you know, a zero-sum negotiation, motivating people, engaging people, clear communication as well as direct communication. So I think all of those skills are, you know, what I've witnessed women leaders at their best bring. I'm not claiming every woman who's in a leadership <laughs> position is at her best. We've all known those who aren't. Um, but uh, and and what's fascinating about them to me is two things. First, how they have all become not only more relevant but more understood as mainstream mm. as the technology nature of the economy have changed. When the Female Advantage was published in 1990, uh, and I talked about the relationship aspect, the strength of relationships, and what I got back was, well, that's not a leadership skill. That's a soft skill. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, time changed, and now it's recognized as a, as a leadership skill. As Tom Peters says, you know, what was soft has become hard, is hard, and what <laughs> was considered hard numbers have become very soft. So uh, I think that has, you know, really served women well, that there's been this sort of confluence between what they bring and what organizations increasingly need. And finally, I think every one of those characteristics is very important in leading in a time of crisis. And probably one of the mm. reasons that if you look at the, say, eight or 10 countries that have had the the most effective response to the COVID crisis, six of them are, are led by women, which is wildly disproportionate mm. when you compare it to how many women leaders there are of countries in the world. I was actually just thinking that as as you were talking, um, you know, you look at Angela Merkel, you look at Jacinda Ardern, and um, just those are just two immediate examples that, that came to mind. But um, it's yeah. just it's an incredible difference. Um, so 
I, and I love that you observed because this, that was a big, uh, that was a big, uh, breakthrough moment for me that I just, I just heard in what you were saying in that there are skills that, that women leaders often bring to leadership that didn't used to be valued and that didn't used to be yes. thought of as, as leadership, but as likely as more women have entered the workforce, as there's just a more diverse workforce overall, we've recognized as a society, as a culture that, you know what, um, a lot of these skills are necessary and important. And hey, guess what? There are people who are naturally inclined to bring them. So it's 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 almost a, a chicken and egg. They're 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 pushing each other forward. You know, as you get more women and you see that they're doing this, you're like, oh, that actually works. Okay, <laughs> maybe everybody should be doing that. Um, whereas if if you don't have any women in leadership and and everybody is kind of that traditional. Um, hard style of communication of leadership, you don't even know that the soft stuff can work because nobody's even trying it. Well, that's exactly right. And it kind of goes back to what, you know, I thought in 1990 is women are getting the wrong advice here. Things are changing. Uh, organizations are changing. Technology changing. That's going to change the leadership model. Let's not get caught up trying to, um, you know, uh, imitate an obsolete uh, leadership style. Now that actually happened more than I could have ever imagined because, you know, we're talking about 1990, we didn't have the internet. So, I mean, you know, some early adapters who understood, you know, very complicated languages uh, on CompuServe, whatever it was, uh, were able to, but, you know, the internet as we know it did not exist. So it, it really, all those factors just push things in a very different direction. Definitely. Now we've been talking a lot about about strengths and positives, and I think it's important to to reflect on those. But I know that there are also a lot of challenges that women might face when it comes to leadership. Um, I'm sure listeners are having things that that automatically pop into their heads, but you have actually done studies on this. So, what are some of the specific challenges that you find that women face when they're in leadership roles? Well, women certainly face some structural and cultural. Um, challenges in organizations, mm -hmm. and those are ongoing. But what I have concentrated on, and especially in how women rise, um, are the habits and behaviors. So the internal mm. that are most likely to hold women back as they seek to move to a higher position. And these are often habits and behaviors that have served them well early in their careers, but then ah. become more problematic as they seek to move into leadership positions. Uh, some of these like overvaluing expertise or, you know, putting your job before your career in order to demonstrate loyalty. Certainly perfectionism is one of these very strong habits that, that women often fall into organizations uh, tend to reward and promote women based on precision and correctness. So they get the idea being precise and correct is the way to get to the top. Guess what? It's not. Uh, organizations yeah. tend to value that in women, but when they're really looking for senior people, it's an outward facing role. They want people who have a lot of visibility. Uh, they want people who have broad connections. They want people they imagine or perceive of as having, you know, strong strategic thinking, leadership skills, et cetera. And, uh, and being a perfectionist can really undermine you at a senior level, creating a lot of stress for yourself and for other people, it's hard to delegate. It's hard to 
um, you know, I, 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 I say this a lot, but it's, it's so true when you think about the perfectionistic boss. I have never in 30 years heard anyone say, oh, I work for a perfectionistic boss and I just love it. No, no one says that. No one wants a perfectionistic <laughs> boss. If you don't heal your perfectionism before you get to a higher level, it can really undermine you. Disease to please another one. You know, you can get somewhere significant in your career by being the person that everybody thinks is a wonderful person and is always terrific and helping everybody and going out of her way and taking black for other people. And, and that can work for a while, but as you move to a senior position, it, it doesn't work at all. It's completely unsustainable and it's, it's, it's not a leadership characteristic. So in how women rise, uh, what we've done, and I, I worked with Marshall Goldsmith on this, and we used some of his coaching templates as well as, you know, all the um, experience I'd had working with so many groups of women around the world, identifying what these habits are, you know, very common things like um, uh, expecting others to spontaneously notice and value your contributions <laughs> because you don't want to have to bring attention to them yourself or building, but then not leveraging relationships. So that's what we were really looking at there. You know, what are these habits that are most likely internally? And I liked working on that because, you know, we can only control what we do. And if we have cultural and structural barriers uh, that we face in our organizations. The most effective way of addressing those is to get to the most senior position we can. So we want to look mm. at what is it getting in our own way so that we can have a greater influence on creating a culture and structure in our organizations and our society that better supports women. That that approach really makes a lot of sense, and and I think you're right. Um, you know, you can't say I'm gonna I'm gonna be at the very bottom of my organization, and I'm gonna fight against the big picture culture and all of these all of these biases that might exist, and and create a space for myself to to grow and rise. Uh, we we can change what we can change, and while you certainly can advocate for big picture changes um, that you see are necessary, uh, it, it is a lot easier. And it's more within your control to change your own behavior, um, not to match, as we were talking about before, not to match uh, necessarily the culture that's available, but to say, how can I leverage my skills, leverage these great abilities that I have um, to be successful? I felt convicted by a lot of those things that you said, and I, I definitely have a lot to uh, a lot to think about. Um, same as same as when I read the book. I got the book a few months ago, and uh, uh, definitely learned a lot. So we've been talking about um, individuals and what they can do, but also I'd love to hear from you just some some big picture things that what can organizations do to better hire and develop women into leadership roles. Well, one thing, and I, I'm really finding that the habits are having a big impact, you know, the, this articulation mm -hmm. of these 12 habits most likely to get in women's ways that are in how women rise, they're having a big impact on organizations and organizations are saying, oh, this helps us on one hand, understand some of the reasons that, for example, when women apply for a, a you know a, a different internal position, they often start by listing all the experiences they have they haven't had that suggest that they're not ready for it. Whereas men never do that. So this helps us explain some of that. It helps us understand that, and it helps us to see how we can coach women to to be more effective in their presentation. So I think. 
think number one is having that kind of uh, awareness of what those habits are. Um, and, and also, you know, one of the things I think that's been, and I just finished an article for strategy and business about this, a big long think piece about what I have noticed change in women's leadership over the last 30 years that I've been in it. And one of the biggest, most important things I think has been the increase among women in solidarity and willingness to Mm. support one another, which was something that was hard to find in the early 90s when women were so stretched and far and few between, and there was a lot of tokenism. So, So what I've seen is the role that women's networks both internally or within a um, a certain field uh, or, or practice have played for women in mm. building solidarity with one another, in creating natural kinds of relationships that can lead to mentoring. Because, you know, so often the programs that are pairing everybody for mentoring, unless they're really done carefully, there's no relationship between the people. So it, it can be, you know, it's better than nothing, but it, it doesn't have its real power. And when you have these, the, the kind of internal and external networks that have been developing over the last 30 years, um, that, and you can, organizations can support them to give them a very practical focus back, you know, again, I've been doing this a long time back in the, in the nineties, even early two thousands, a lot of it was just sort of brown bag lunches where everybody sat around and talked about how horrible everything was, you know, wasn't very effective and, or they had kind of off the shelf training um, that was fine, but, you know, again, not really transformative. And what I see now is there that these networks are really more and more focused on, you know, what skills do we need? How can we develop them? Who can help us develop them? What relationships do we need to develop so that we can really build alliances that serve, that help women serve, you know, uh, identify and serve their strategic as well as their tactical objectives? How can we do that? How can we give women the support to be able to build the skills that will get them to a higher level? So what I see now are networks that are really dealing with these questions and I see them all over. I see them in building trades and I see them in companies or in, in, in organizations that support women who are in international development work. So I'm looking at very different ends of the spectrum there. And that to me has been, you know, something that organizations really need to think about. How do we do this? How do we do this most effectively? And how do we help Mm. the women begin to build the alliances um, in the organization, at the leadership level, with other people uh, who may be in, you know, employee resource groups of different kinds. Where do we find common ground there? So, to help one another and build solidarity to move forward. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so much there. I, I wish we could take a deeper dive, but I'm looking at the clock, and I know we need to we need to start winding our conversation down. So, one question that we always like to ask our guests is, "What are some books that you would recommend to our listeners? They could be specifically about everything we've been talking about today, or just um, something in general that you think would be would be helpful or inspirational to people in this moment." Sure. Three things occur to me at this moment. First of all, there's a I read every single morning uh, a couple pages 
from the R double the R L wing translation of uh, the Tao of Power. It is about it's the mm. most profound book about leadership I know. I've I I'm on my third copy. They fall apart. I've I've made this my practice for more than 30 years. And it really teaches me about what great leadership is better than anything. So that's the R.L. Wing translation of the Tao of Power. And you can get it for about six bucks used on, um, you know, on Amazon or any online provider. I think especially now in this time of crisis, uh, I'm going to Shout out a friend of mine, Tom Kolditz, who was head of behavioral science at West Point for many years, now heads an enormous coaching initiative at Rice University in Houston. And um, Tom Kolditz, a general in the in the U.S. Army, and he wrote a mm. fantastic book a number of years ago called Leading in Crisis. So he really knows how you lead a team in war and in a serious crisis. And, and I think he's got just wonderful, wonderful thoughts right now. And that book, of course, not surprisingly, has just uh, taken off in a new way. It's been <laughs> out for a few years. And then the third thing is anything by Amy Edmondson, who's who's at Harvard, and she writes about psychological safety. And I think that, you know, her work is so powerful and brilliant in any case. But again, right now, you know, what is it that helps people in organizations to feel safe? Uh, because that that's so important right now when when mm -hmm. when things are challenging as they are. Absolutely. Those are three excellent, excellent recommendations. Thank you so much, Sally. If you want people to learn more about you and more about your work, where should they go? Well, you can go to my website. I've got lots of material on there, um, lots of information, and uh, there's a contact button on there. So you get right through to my email. I hear from a lot of people that way. Uh, also, I'm uh, pretty active on LinkedIn. That's the one social media platform I like because nobody ever says anything bad about each other. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it was, oh, you're fabulous. You're wonderful. I love you. Uh, so I I, I, I I enjoy being in that world instead of hearing everybody's opinions about why everybody else is a jerk. So, um, <laughs> so those are the best ways. Uh, and I'm very responsive. I get lots of people, you know, from all over the world asking me to connect with them on LinkedIn and basically always say yes. Yeah. Um, one thing I notice about LinkedIn is it's the only social network where the principle of if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all actually lives. People don't tend to do the complaining on LinkedIn. They'll, they'll put that somewhere else. But LinkedIn is just for the, the nice stuff. That's a great observation. Yeah. All right. Well, thank That's you so, like so much. Thank you so, so much for being with us, Sally. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, it's been a great ple pleasure, Elizabeth. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and the resources for everything that Sally and I have been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 260. This is episode 260. And don't forget to check out the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com slash insights. If you did enjoy the show today, please recommend us to a friend. That is the best way to help more people discover the show. And if you're not yet subscribed, make sure to do that. That'll help you hear every new episode just as soon as it goes live. You can subscribe for free wherever it is that you're listening right now. We're very committed to constant growth, learning, and improvement. So we would absolutely love your feedback. 
You can leave us ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts or email us with direct feedback, questions, and guest suggestions at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchoff, Mark Crogan, and me, Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling!